if you will remain standing and turn now in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 10. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Well, as you probably saw as we went through and read the psalm, the theme is the oppression that is experienced by the poor and the needy. And so in this psalm, we hear the cry of the afflicted. Now, it has been uh, some time since we were last in the psalms, but you might remember that when we looked at the previous psalm, Psalm 9, we noted that both it and this psalm, Psalm 10, go together. 
I mentioned at that time that Psalm 9 forms an acrostic, which continues on into Psalm chapter 10. And because of this, and maybe for some other reasons as well, some have suggested that they were originally just one psalm. I'm not necessarily convinced of that. I do think, though, that they were meant to go together as a pair. The psalm titles, we've mentioned this in the past, are not part of Holy Scripture, but it is interesting that Psalm 10 does not have its own title. And having said that, uh, Psalm 2 does not have a title, and it forms a pair with Psalm 1. They're two separate psalms. Nevertheless, they go together as a pair. We saw that when we looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And so we have another example of two psalms forming a pair. The theme of Psalm 9 was about the kingdom of God overcoming the wicked, and that God is a refuge for the poor and the afflicted. And we see that theme being carried forward in Psalm 10. Now, verse 1 begins with the psalmist lamenting before God. He's in lamentation. He's mourning. And he asks, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, have you ever felt the way the psalmist does here in verse 1? That the Lord is far away when you're experiencing trouble. The psalms really are filled with every emotion that you can experience. And so they are helpful to pray no matter what you're facing in life. There's always a psalm that will relate to whatever you're going through. Sometimes you don't know what to pray or how to ask. And yet the Lord has given us the psalms to pray when we don't know how to speak. Of course, we know the Spirit knows how better to pray for us and intercedes for us as well. But we are commanded in Scripture to go to the Lord in prayer. And He has provided us examples and actual prayers in the Psalms to pray when we're experiencing different troubles, different situations, different emotions. Now, it's not true that God is ever far away. He never hides from his people when they're experiencing trouble. But like the psalmist, we can feel that way at times. When trouble doesn't seem to go away, when difficulties in life just continue to linger on and on, we can begin to wonder if God has hidden himself from us. But in reality, God is never far from his people. As Psalm 9.9 mentioned, God is indeed a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of need. God is not far away or hiding from his people, but is a very present help in time of need. 
And so when we feel this way, we should not begin to take things into our own hands, ignoring God and ignoring his commands to us. But we should go to the Lord in prayer and remember the promises of his word, just as the psalmist does here. Many of those psalms which begin with a lament, they end, just as Psalm 10 will end, with praising God, knowing that he has and will answer his prayers. That's the effect when we go to the Lord in prayer. When we go to him as our refuge, as we go to him as our stronghold, we have confidence even when facing difficult trials, even when dealing with affliction. And so we should take the psalmist's example here and follow going to the Lord in prayer, seeking him as a refuge when we are going through trials of whatever sort. Now the rest of this psalm, verse 2 forward, really can be broken down into two parts. There's overlap between them. But the first part, verses 2 through 11, primarily describes the character of the psalmist's oppressors. And then the second part, verses 12 through 18, is a prayer against the oppressors. And so first, the character of the oppressors, and then secondly, a prayer against the oppressors. And so let's begin then with the character of those that are oppressing the psalmist. Listen to the words. I'm just going to read just a few of the words that describes the oppressors in verses 2 through 4. He says, they are arrogant, verse 2. They boast and are greedy, verse 3. They are prideful, verse 4. And so the oppressors arrogantly pursue the poor. Now, the word there for poor, I think, is, is better translated afflicted. They arrogantly pursue the afflicted, the weak. Why? Because, verse 3, they are greedy for gain. They only boast for the earthly desires of their heart. They do not boast in the Lord. He is not their treasure. Instead, they curse and renounce the Lord, taking advantage of his people so that they might prosper off of them. Now in verse 4 it says, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, David is the psalmist here in Psalm 10. And he's not saying that these oppressors do not believe that God exists. He's not speaking about philosophical atheism as we would know it today. He's not, he's not speaking as if the wicked do not believe in the existence of God. He's talking about a practical atheism. In other words, the wicked do not believe that God will call them to account. In fact, you heard that in the psalm as we read it. 
You see, these oppressors, they are prideful and they do not yield to God as their lawgiver and judge. Now, we might ask, what what would cause someone, what would cause these oppressors to act in such a way, to think in such a way? Well, their depravity, of course, is why they think in these terms, but in particular, their earthly power and prosperity leads them to think in such ways. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. You see, his ways are prospering. That's what fallen man thinks. In his prosperity, I have it all. I have no need of someone. I can live how I desire. No one's going to call me to account. Look at all that I've come to possess. Who will stop me? Who can move me? And so here's the picture the psalmist is painting of the oppressor. He is arrogant, prideful, and greedy for self-gain. He does not seek after God because he believes or does not believe that he will be held accountable by God. Therefore, he thinks that he is above God's law. Even more, he he thinks that he is a law unto himself. And therefore, on account of his lust and greed, he uses his power to prey on the weak, the lowly, the poor, the afflicted, in order to gain more wealth and more power. Now, we might think that this describes really a relatively small percentage of people in the world, but this is actually very prominent in the culture today, in every culture throughout time. I think of just today, you can find this in the business world or in the political world where people simply take advantage of poor and the needy in order to gain power and prosperity. You can find this in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry in general. You can even find this within the church, believe it or not. Jude warned about such men in his short one-chapter epistle. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny, see there's the denial, here's the practical atheism, who deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 16, he goes to say of them that they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, Listen, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism for what? To gain advantage. 
And so you see, this is not just something out there in the world. But it even creeps into the church. These are people that don't necessarily deny the existence of God, but they deny that God is involved in the day-to-day practical aspects of life. They think that they're in charge of those things themselves. And in order to get ahead, they have to take advantage of others. They think it's a dog-eat-dog world. And that if God exists, then he won't hold them accountable for their actions. And so they are a law unto themselves. Beloved, I suggest to you that there are many who call themselves Christians that think and live in this very way. In fact, I would say that this type of person lives in each and every one of us. And so we must be careful not to claim to believe in God, but then to live our lives like practical atheists. That we go to church on Sunday and there's the time for the Lord, but the other days of the week are for me to handle my business in my life, in my own way. Instead, we must remember that God has reserved a day of judgment against the wicked and that the ungodly will be brought to account for their actions. We must remember that Judgment begins in the household of God. That God is indeed involved in every aspect of our lives. That he is involved in the day-to-day activities. He is sovereign and providentially ruling over every tiny thing that happens. And all will have to stand before him and give an account. Now, as the psalmist moves on in verses 7 through 11, he goes on to talk about the manner in which the wicked oppress the poor and the needy. He's still describing their character, but describes their manner, their manner of being. In general, he says that they use deceitful speech and even violence. Of their mouths, he says in verse 7, That his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. John Calvin describes this verse well saying that the tongues of the wicked are full of perjuries and deceit. And that they carry or hide mischief and wrongs. It being impossible, he says, to have any dealings with them in any matter without loss. Or damage. In other words, he's saying they're swindlers trying to gain for themselves by lying and deceiving others. And then in verse 8, he speaks of them as highway robbers who will even murder the helpless if necessary to gain what they desire. In verse 9, he says that they seek after the poor the way a lion lurks in ambush for his prey, or like a hunter who sets his net to trap the hunted. 
And finally, in verse 11, he says that they think that God does not see their treacherous acts. Again, this is all this practical atheism, which imagines that God is not concerned or even aware of the evil that they do. They go on living in their lives as if he doesn't exist, whether they think he does or not. Now, it's at verse 12, the psalm switches to the psalmist's prayer against the wicked oppressors. And this speaks to how we should respond to our enemies, to our oppressors in this life. We are often tempted to turn on them and to seek for revenge. They did this to me. Just wait till I get them back. Have you felt that way? But our response should be to go to the Lord, who is the helper of the oppressed. I think of Christ on the cross, who could have brought them all to immediate judgment then and there. But praise for his enemies. He goes to the Father to seek help. To bring him salvation from the death that he would would soon receive. And we know that the Lord answered his prayer. That he raised him on the third day. But you see, beloved... It is God who repays, not us. Jesus, as God, had that right, but did not take advantage of it in that moment and taught us that we must go to the Lord in prayer. It is God who repays, not us. Vengeance is of the Lord, not of his people. And so the psalmist turns in prayer to God He is not a practical atheist. He knows that God will hold accountable, hold all men accountable to their wicked deeds and will bring justice to his people. In verse 12, he asks God to arise and lift up his hand so as not to forget the afflicted. And that is the language there that the Israelites would use when going up to battle their enemies. You see, God sat enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, above the Ark of the Testimony, and they would ask him to rise up. Rise up and go into battle for us, O Lord. And then they would carry the Ark ahead of them as they went to war. And his arm here is a description, it's an analogy for his power. And so the psalmist was asking God to save them, to save the needy, to save the afflicted by his almighty power. To rise up and to bring him salvation. He knows where his salvation comes from. It's not by his own hands. It's not by his own power, by his own arm, but by the arm of the Lord, the power of God from there comes salvation. And so he goes to the Lord. The psalmist also acknowledges 
that regardless of what the wicked think, God is all-seeing and will bring the wicked to account for their deeds. For God is a helper to the fatherless. Now, when speaking here of the fatherless, he's not, he's not speaking about literal orphans. Not specifically. But he's using that as a metaphor to speak of those who are helpless in their own power. In their society, probably in just about any society, orphans are the most vulnerable, the most weak and powerless. And so he is using orphans as an analogy to describe Israel's helplessness. The God of Israel is a father to the fatherless and a helper to the helpless. And so they can, verse 14, commit themselves to God. That is, they can flee to God or take refuge in God, their helper. In verse 15, he specifically prays that God would break the arm of the wicked, of those that do evil. And again, the arm is the symbol of power. And so he's asking the Lord to take the sinner's power away and bring them to account for all that they've done. It's really a prayer for final judgment He's asking the Lord to put an end to wickedness and to those who practice it by judging them once for all. And following that specific request, the psalmist then displays a change in outlook, just as we described when we were referencing verse 1 earlier. You see, he began with that lament. But then he begins to rejoice here At the end of the psalm, he declares God a king forever and that the wicked will perish from his land. He knows that the Lord will hear his prayers, will hear the desires of his heart to be saved from affliction and will give him strength and will bring justice to the fatherless and to the afflicted. And so he praises the Lord knowing that God His God, His covenant God, will hear Him and will answer His prayer. He knows that He is a faithful God who will bring justice. Now, it's been our goal as we look at each psalm to demonstrate how they are fulfilled in Christ. And we know that the Psalter was the very hymn book of Christ. He would have sung them. He would have prayed them. He was, of course, afflicted by the enemy. The devil, who according to Peter is a roaring lion, was always lurking around to ambush Jesus. After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke 4.13 says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He lied in wait. Like a lion in the bush, seeking when Jesus might be weak. The devil thought that he would have devoured him once for all at the cross. And the evil and wicked men of that generation did afflict him even to the point of death. And Jesus, as Hebrews 5 says, prayed with loud cries and tears to the Father for salvation. Not salvation from 
any sin, of course, because he had none, but from the death that he was to encounter. And so we even know that Jesus prayed to the Father in lamentation. We, we don't think that way. That seems kind of odd, perhaps, that our Savior, our Lord, would lament. But he did. He went in lamentation before the Father, asking if it were possible that he might take the cup of suffering from him. But ultimately praying for the Father's will to be done. And so our own Savior, Jesus Christ, who knows of our weaknesses and sufferings, used this psalm. He used all of the psalms for prayer. And so too should we. Because just as they were hymns for Jesus, so they are hymns for us to sing and for us to pray as well. Satan and his kingdom are our enemies. From the very first sin, Satan has held mankind captive to their sins. He rules over them as a tyrant. He promises them satisfaction with the things of this world, but it's all deception. He blinds people from seeing the truth of God. The goodness of God and the salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. The devil makes himself out to be the true humanitarian that cares for mankind. Yet throughout redemptive history, he has accused mankind before God. He hotly pursues the poor and the needy. Like a lion, he seeks whom he may devour. His kingdom always seems to prosper. That, beloved, that is our enemy. He is strong and mighty, but God has sent refuge in Christ. On one occasion, after casting out a demon, Jesus proclaimed that he came to bind the strong man and to plunder his house, to plunder his kingdom. In fact, just after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by the devil, he went to the synagogue at Nazareth, and from the scroll of Isaiah he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then following the reading of that scripture, he said, I can only imagine what the crowd must have been like on that day when he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Christ was saying that he had come to break the arm, the power of the evil one. He would free his people from their captivity. He would give sight to those whom the devil had blinded by their sins and would give liberty to the oppressed of Satan's kingdom. And this he did all by the word of his mouth. 
by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the good news to the poor. The good news that Christ had come to pay for their sins by offering himself as the payment. If you are in Christ, you have been freed from Satan's kingdom and the reigning power of sin in Satan's kingdom has now been defeated through the work of Christ at the cross. Now, this does not mean that it has been put away altogether. That kingdom will continue to exist as long as Christ continues to plunder it by freeing his elect from its dominion and tyranny. And that kingdom still boasts in its greed and stealthily watches the poor to seize them and afflict them. This kingdom really seems to prosper in this life. And they do not believe that they will ever be held accountable. They do not think that they will ever find adversity. And they shake their fist at God, challenging Him to move them. But do not doubt for one minute, beloved, that God will answer in its fullness the prayer of Psalm 10. We are not called to take ultimate matters into our hands and to drive out all evil from this world. Now we can seek to help those who are oppressed in this world and seek after civil justice in this world. But ultimately, we are called to pray for God to bring judgment upon the wicked. And that can be done in two ways. Of course, we know it can be done at the return of Christ when he will call all to stand before his judgment seat and to give account. And we do pray. We should, in accordance with Psalm 10, pray for that day to come that God might be glorified in bringing judgment and justice. But there's also a second way. You see, until that day comes, and we ought to pray for that day to come, but until it comes, we can also seek for the Lord's justice in praying that the Holy Spirit might put to death the old man of sin in each person's life. You see, we know not who the elect are. We're called to love our enemy and to pray for our enemy. And so... We can pray that justice be done as their wickedness and their judgment befalls Christ in their salvation. And so we don't pray for any certain individual to be judged finally to condemnation. We know not the hearts. We know not God's eternal plan his election. We know not who's in the Lamb's book of life. And so we pray that God would save and would do his work between now and his final day. And we pray for that day to come quickly when he would indeed bring all wickedness 
to a close. We cannot resort to ungodliness, beloved, when we are oppressed, but we must commit ourselves to the father of the fatherless, for he will take into his hands the mischief and the vexation done by the hands of the wicked. The Lord will not forget the afflicted. He will arise on the final day, and the wicked nations will perish from his land. And the men of this earth will strike terror no more, for God will cause the meek, the poor, the lowly, to inherit the earth. To him, our triune God, be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do indeed pray for the final day to come soon, that you would indeed put an end to all wickedness and bring justice into the world, that you would cast Satan and all who are aligned with him into the lake of fire. But Lord, we also pray that we would continue to obey Christ's command to go into all the world and to make disciples from every nation. For we know that Christ is continuing to take more and more of his elect away from the kingdom of Satan. And he is causing the captive to be set free And for the blind to see. Lord may we be busy. In keeping with those commands. And sharing the good news. With those who know you not. Lord help us not to live. As practical atheists. But as those who always seek. To obey your commands in all that we do. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.